Thank you, Kate and John. Just before we get into that passage, a quick announcement. So thinking about church, churches in the last few years, most churches during the COVID era were just surviving. And God really looked after King's Church and we, we survived very well. And then our last year as a church has really in some ways been about stability, about uh, settling down, new, new senior pastor, uh, people moving in and out, changes, kind of getting used to being who we are now post-COVID. But the next season to come isn't just about stability. Ne- the next season is a time to build. It's a time to build on the foundations that have been laid here over many years and to see what God has in store for us uh, as we move together into the future. So we're going to be holding a special season in the life of the church starting in two weeks' time, which is called a time to build. And it's a season where we will gather around our mission as a church, the identity, the tasks that God is calling us to here. And we'll also present the financial needs of the ministry to the congregation and ask everyone if they can gather around and help us build this ministry. So we will be having a giving season starting in two weeks. We'll have a special Sunday. We'll present that. And then a month later, we will have a pledge Sunday where we'll bring back our pledges for what we can give to God's work. So I just wanted to give you a heads up about that before we uh, go into this passage. Let's just pray again. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, I can hear a buzzing in the background, slightly like it's going to get into feedback. I don't know if, can you hear that? You're all right. Well, that's okay. Don't, don't worry about me. So open your Bible again to uh, Genesis 13. I wonder if you've ever heard of Anthony Ashley Cooper. Put your hand up if you have. Got one back there, two, three. Yes, got some smart people here. He was born in London in 1801 into an aristocratic family. He was raised in privilege. He went to Harrow School and Oxford University. He was known as Lord Ashley until his father's death in 1851. And you may know him by his title, Lord Shaftesbury. Lord Shaftesbury. He was, in fact, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. And at the age of 25, he was elected Member of Parliament for Woodstock. And from that moment on, Lord Shaftesbury devoted his life to the service of his fellow men and women, especially the poor. He worked on the reform of lunacy laws, factory reform, laws relating to mining, campaigning on behalf of chimney sweeps who were treated dreadfully, education reform, promotion of ragged schools for kids from a poor background. He was president of the Bible Society and many other causes. He died in 1885 after a long and fruitful life, and a funeral service was held in Westminster Abbey. We've all seen one of those this week during the early morning. And the streets were thronged. The streets of London were thronged with poor people, flower girls, boot blacks, crossing sweepers, factory hands, and similar workers who waited for hours to see Shaftesbury's coffin as it passed by. Because of his constant striving for better treatment of the poor, Shaftesbury became known as the poor man's earl. One biographer claimed that no man has in fact ever done more to lessen the extent of human misery or to add to the sum total of human happiness than Lord Shaftesbury. 
And that was in spite of, actually, he himself had huge financial struggles. He inherited a lot of land, but not much money. And he was always in debt and mortgage to the hill and trying to look after his people. And what he did, rather than stop giving, was to start selling. So he sold the, uh, the, the great paintings that belonged to his family historically. And he added, I must surrender more heirlooms, dismantle my walls, check ancestral feeling, and thank God it is no worse. What made a privileged white man live like that? Pour himself out for other people. What made a privileged white man live like that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Lord Shaftesbury understood the gospel, and the gospel made him generous. Now, at King's Church, this term, we're looking at the life of Abraham in a series called The Gospel to Abraham. Gospel means good news, great news, glad news. The Gospel to Abraham. Now, Abraham is a very significant person in world history. Three of the major religions all claim Abraham as the father of faith, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. So that accounts for over half of the world's population. So it's worth knowing a bit about Abraham. But our interest is not just historical. The New Testament says that God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. That is a fascinating phrase. God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. It means that in some way, in some manner, God revealed the good news to Abraham, even though he lived over 2,000 years before Jesus walked to the earth. And Abraham believed God's word, and he built his life on God's promises. So we're looking at Abraham's life for what we can learn about God, about the gospel, the God of promise, and and also what we can learn about our own lives, the life of faith. And the main thing that we learn from chapter 13, so if you only take away one thing from today, here it is. The gospel makes you generous. Five words. The gospel makes you generous. That's what Lord Shaftesbury knew. And Abraham learned it about 4,000 years before him. The gospel makes you generous. And our passage today, which Kate just read, shows us what generosity looks like. And if you've closed your Bible, please open it again to page 14. We're looking at Genesis 13. And what does generosity look like? This story gives us a sobering contrast. There are two main characters, Abraham and his nephew Lot. And what we see here is the beauty of a generous life and the bondage of a selfish life. The beauty of a generous life and the bondage of a selfish life. So firstly, Abraham, this character, the beauty of a generous life. Now back in chapter 11 and 12, when we first met Abraham, we we see him as a pretty fairly unimpressive character. He's uh, not particularly virtuous, he's not particularly gifted, he's already at the stage of life when you'd normally be thinking about retirement, he's um, actually an idol worshipper, He's not a worshipper of the true God. He's not a particularly good person or a great character. In fact, there is nothing special about Abraham that may God want to choose him. But God is not like us. He is not controlled or influenced or limited by human potential. God takes losers and turns them into winners and then makes them bless the world turns people around. And God called this man and made the most extraordinary promises to him. We thought about that last week and the week before. 
I will make you into a great nation, and you have a great name, and he promised that he would protect him, and that through Abraham, every family, every nation on earth would be blessed. God is, in fact, turning back the, the dark chapters of the first part of the Bible, and this is his counterattack, is through this man and his descendants. And as a result of those promises, what we see today is that Abraham became a really extraordinarily generous man. We pick up the story with them returning from Egypt, uh, where he's been considerably enriched. Look at verses 1 to 4. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. So he's been considerably enriched in Egypt and, and come out with great wealth. And his nephew Lot has been with him, and Lot's done pretty well too. Look at verse 5. Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So he's doing quite well. But no sooner do these guys get back to the promised land than problems kick off. Verses 6 and 7. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together, and quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. So there's, there's problems kicking off. There's fighting between the two groups of herdsmen. There's, there's like a turf war going on about who should be able to have their flocks on this bit of land, and, and it's, it's, it's escalating. And so before, before it can get, go too far, Abram steps in with a solution, and it is eye-poppingly generous. It reveals the beauty of a generous heart. Now, it would be easy to overlook what's going on here, but let me just remind you of three facts. Abraham is the uncle. So in that culture, he's the one with the authority and all the rights. He's the senior man in the, in the situation, and he's the one who has been called by God to go there. Lot's just coming along for the ride. Abraham's driving the bus. Lot is the passenger. He's riding shotgun, and he's done quite well out of it. But really, Lot has no rights at all in this situation culturally. He should be taking orders from Abraham, but that is not what happens. Abraham waves his own rights and gives Lot dibs. He gives him the first choice of the pasture land. Why does he do it? Verse 8, for the sake of peace. Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. He knows where this is heading, and he wants to stop it. Now, let me just ask, have you ever seen what money can do to families? Have you ever seen what money can do to families? An inheritance, possessions. There's a saying, where there's a will, there's a family. Money and possessions bring out the most entitled, ugly, self-serving things in our hearts. We're all susceptible to it. The more money there is, the more likely there will be problems. And Abraham steps in, and it's all about land here. And what he decides is he's going to be a peacemaker, like his God, even though it costs him dear. You see, although Abraham could stand on his rights... He waves them for the sake of peace, and he puts Lot's needs first. And he says, go on, Lot, you choose. You choose. And he says in verse 9, is not the whole land before you, Lot? 
Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, scholars tell us that from the vantage point of Bethel, you have a magnificent view of the Jordan Valley, and it is clear to everyone standing there where the good land is. Everybody can see it. On the Canaan side, there's limited pasture. Maybe it looks a bit dry. We know that it's prone to drought from chapter 12. But then, oh my word, there's the Jordan Valley. And it's beautiful. And the narrator, who is usually quite self-controlled, gets a bit out of control in verse 10. Look what he says. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. He's just saying, oh, this, this place looks fantastic. It's a herdsman's dream. It's a farmer's dream. And it's like, he's writing this. It's like a starving man looking at a steak dinner. His mouth's watering. Oh, look at that land. Now, we need to remember that Abram is still a wealthy person at this point. He has got significant wealth in the form of flocks, herds, and precious metals. He's not gone and sold the farm here and given the proceeds to charity and gone off to a monastery. And I wanted to point that out because some Christians have tended to think that if you're really serious about following Jesus, you should give everything away. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It might be the case that some people are called to give away wealth. Jesus called one rich person to do that. But that was because his riches were a serious problem to him, like a, a spiritual cancer. But the normal pattern in the Bible is, that, is to see wealth as a gift from God, but beware letting it control you. Beware the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. Beware the love of money, not money. Beware the love of it. And then, if you have been given wealth, to use your wealth with eye-popping generosity, to invest in God's kingdom. That's the Bible's pattern. In the early church, in Acts, there was a community made up of everyone from the rich to the poor and everybody in between. And it says in Acts, those who had property sold fields and gave the money to the leaders to distribute among the poor. Some of them had property. They were landowners, people of substance. It's not communism. They don't give it all away. But it's not capitalism either. It's a third way, a gospel generosity. But you know how rich people often stay rich? Do you know? It's by being really stingy. <laughs> by being really stingy. I've got a friend at this church, I won't name him, he drives a delivery van for a, a, a chain, and he was delivering some groceries to a very rich man in a very big house who had two sports cars and a Range Rover parked in the driveway. And my friend, the delivery man, parked his van and he got the groceries out, and the rich man looked at the, you know they, have the, they always give you a sheet that says, here's what you've ordered and here's the replacements and stuff. And he looked at it and he said, uh, there are, there's some plastic bags in here that I've been charged 40 pence for and I requested specifically that there were no bags so I want that 40 pence back and so the delivery man said look, I can't, I can't do much about it I can phone them back at the, the warehouse if you want you know, we can try and work something out and the guy said, no, I want my 40 pence so the driver went to the van to his tips jar took out 40p and 5 pence coins went back to the house and counted it out. And the man took it. <laughs> yes, he didn't lose his 40p on the plastic bags. Not Abraham. He's just given Lot the offer of a lifetime. 
the winning lottery ticket. He just signed away all the best pasture land. He may be rich, but he's also spectacularly generous. And it took a big heart to do that, didn't it, for his nephew? That's very beautiful. There's nothing more ugly than someone insisting on their rights, insisting that they get their own way. And there's nothing more beautiful than a person graciously stepping aside and giving someone else the advantage that they could have had. You go first. You take that. That was fine. Please, after you. Now, do you want to live like that? Do you want to be that kind of person? What kind of life, what kind of character do you want, friends? Do you want to insist on the 40p for your plastic bags? Now, what was it that turned Abram into this kind of person that he could give that away? Remember, he's no different from the rest of us. He's not some kind of two-dimensional saint. It's the power of believing God's promise. Back in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord himself had appeared to him and given him this promise. To your offspring, I will give this land. Don't know when. God said to him, I will give, I'll give your offspring, your descendants, the entire land. And Abraham believed it. And the logic then is, I can trust God for everything. The whole land will come to my family one day. I don't know when. But if God can be trusted with the whole of my life, the whole of my existence, the whole of my substance, my bank account, my future, then of course I can afford to be generous to Lot here and now. So do you want to be like that? to shine with the beauty of a generous life? Or do you want to be like Lot? Let's have a look at him. Lot tells us the story, the bondage of a self-centered life because we pick up the story in verse 10. Lot lifts up his eyes. He looks around and he sees the Jordan Valley and his heart and mind are completely captured by what he sees because it will make him rich beyond his wildest dreams. Or so he thinks. Now, Lot teaches us about the danger of having too much concern for your material life and not enough concern for your spiritual life. It's a very grave danger. Too much concern for his material life. And this makes him greedy. Look at verse 11. It says this. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. He's just bagged the whole lot. Now we know where Lot got his name from. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, he could have deferred to his uncle. He could have asked to come to an arrangement. Can we share? They could have shared the fertile land, but Lot grabs the offer with both hands. He will take all that he can get with no thought for Uncle Abraham. He's like that kid at the children's party. There's a table with 20 chicken nuggets on it. The kid gets there first, and he wolfs 15 chicken nuggets before the others can get there. And he sits there looking bloated. Who ate all the nuggets? <laughs> now, the flip side of being over-concerned about material things is a terrible danger. Not enough concern for his spiritual life. Not enough concern of his, for his spiritual life. And how do we know this? We'll look at what, what verse 10, the end of verse 10 says. Lot looked around and saw the plain of the Jordan towards Zohar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that's a very ominous statement, isn't it? That even though it looks amazing, God is going to destroy this place. There's something about it that is so evil that God is going to rain down judgment on it. And again, why did he destroy them? In verse 13, it says, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So the narrator here is laying it on thick. These people are notoriously evil, and yet they are also notoriously wealthy. And that's what Lot's choosing. In spite of the spiritual risk, he wants it all. Now, the word Sodom has got unfortunate connotations in the English language. A certain sexual practice was called sodomy in English, and that entered the law. But when you read the literature of the ancient world about the city of Sodom, the writers do not talk about sexual practices. They always talk about money. The place was famous for being filthy rich and absolutely cruel to the poor. It's in our own Bible, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. The most conspicuous sins of that place were to do with the abuse of wealth. And that is ugly, isn't it? There's nothing more ugly than a self-centered, greedy person who is already affluent, grabbing more and neglecting the poor. And it disgusts us when we see it. Ben Judah, a few uh, years ago, wrote a book called This is London. Ben Judah was a journalist. He wanted to understand London that he'd grown up in, but he'd been away for many years. He went and lived with the poor in the city of London. He, he entered into communities of Romanian homeless people. He entered into their lives and slept rough with them and understood what they, they were, their lives were like and how they'd been sold. And they'd borrowed money in Romania when, they, when there was famine. And they'd been, money lenders had lent them money and told them, get this bus to London and when you get there, you can work to pay us back. But when they got there, they were sold into trafficking, all kinds of slavery. And Ben Judah records people, these Romanians, sleeping on the streets of, of the great streets of London and, and begging outside ho hotels where Russian billionaires were walking out with all their wealth and, and beautiful gold Rolexes and supermodels and stepping over these people as they went towards their luxury car. We see this in our own city. And it disgusts us. Now, why did I say that Lot's life was bondage? Was it really that bad? Was it really like being imprisoned? After all, he did get the good land for a while. Well, the answer is found in the next few chapters of Genesis. Lot was actually captured by some wicked kings, and they robbed him and took him to the cleaners. And Abraham had to rescue him with his own private army. Later on, Lot, first of all, he, he camped near the city. Later on, he moved into the city. And so when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot lost everything. He fled for his life. Second Peter in the New Testament says that Lot lived there in misery because of the evil lifestyle. But that was what he had chosen. So what kind of life do we want? The beauty of generosity? 
or the bondage of living for self. Now, it's easy to say, of course, that we want to be like Abraham. We want a beautiful life. We, we, we know it's good to be generous. We know that. But we have a problem too, a problem in here, a heart problem, because we are not necessarily free to be truly generous. You and I, we're not necessarily free. And I can think of three possible reasons. Status, security, or selectivity. Status. You feel you can't be more generous because you don't have enough for yourself. But why don't you have enough? Because you need more money in order to acquire and buy a certain status to be this person. And maybe that you aspire to a certain identity. You know which clothes and things you need in order to project that image of that person that you'd like to be. The trouble is those brand names cost a lot of money. You have to be generous to yourself and not to others. You need a certain kind of car. You need a certain kind of house, certain kind of address, certain kind of laptop, handbag. We knew a woman in, in Manchester who spent 800 pounds on a, on a designer handbag but couldn't pay the mortgage. See, that image with the bag was more important because of status. Clothes, holidays, children's education, whatever it is. You may aspire to a cool identity. You may aspire to be middle class. You may aspire to green wellies, Range Rover, and a golden Labrador. And walking in Claygate Woods. It may be something else. I don't know what it is. But that status controls your heart and your wallet, and it stops you from being generous. And this is very keen here. I've observed this since moving back to Chesington after 16 years away. We are the affordable end of a rich borough. It's a very interesting place to live, because we're actually... People in Chesington usually aren't rich, but they're surrounded by wealthy people. Wherever you go, Richmond, you know, you name it. So, so what's the danger for us? Is we're always feeling like the poor relations. Ah, I can't afford that. And I teach in this school, but I can't afford to send my kids there. You know, there's Chelsea players going to have their hair cut down at North Parade. Oh, being near that much money. But you're, you're going to KFC for lunch. Now, for other people here, status is not really the issue. You don't really care, actually. You don't care about comparing yourself to people who live in Chelsea. For you, the issue is about security. Money gives you security. You don't have enough to be generous because you are controlled by your, your need to be secure and safe. And if you were really generous, then you might worry you wouldn't have enough of savings. And what might happen if you didn't have enough savings? You would lose your sense of security because it's all down to you and that's what your heart yearns for above all else because you've got to have savings because you can't really trust Jesus Christ. It's not just about money, you know. Some people fear sharing their time. If I'm generous with my time, if I give a lot of time to other people, I won't have enough me time. And then who knows what might happen to me? I might get stressed, anxious, or have a breakdown. Some people fear sharing themselves. If I let you in, if I let other people in, if I let other Christians in, if I, if I give myself to other people, if I'm generous with my heart, if I become vulnerable, what might happen to me? I can't do it. 
I might get hurt. I would lose my security. I won't be safe. So you hide behind a wall of privacy and with guards patrolling the perimeter. You will only give yourself to a select few. You're stingy with yourself. You will not give yourself to others. For some, it's not about status or security, but they're selective. Some people are actually generous in time and money and themselves, but they're actually stingy because they are so selective about who they will be generous with. I remember a friend of mine, I admire him a lot, an older man, he was very generous to members of his family. He pointed once, I was with him, he pointed out of the window of his house and he said, Mike, I will do anything for my kids, but everyone else out there can go to hell. Are you generous within limits, but you say others don't deserve it, hence you've got no bandwidth for the poor? Our craving for status or security or our intense selectivity means that we're not actually free to be eye-poppingly generous. We're not free to live like Abraham did. So we discover to our shock that in some ways we're actually more like Lot. Now, I started out today saying that this chapter teaches that the gospel... The good news makes you generous. How does it work? How did it work for Abraham? He believed the, God, the word of God to him, the promise, and he trusted that God would take care of it. Don't know how. Don't know when. Abraham's generosity was not because of his own goodness. He wasn't just a great guy. It actually came from belief in the promise. And God had showed up. And God showed up again and reiterated the promise at this point. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north, the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Now this is the most spectacular and vivid promise God has yet given him. And he does it after he made the offer to Lot. You see that? Abraham has to make the big, bold gift before he's got this extra promise. And now he's told, walk the land. You can see it's all going to be yours one day, my son. We still don't know when. And by the way, spoiler alert, he actually died with a cave and a field. That's all he had when he died. Still looking forward to the promise. God will keep it. Such reassurance from God at that point. The beauty of a generous life, the bondage of a self-centered life. That's Abraham. What about you and me? Finally, I want to think about Jesus and the beginning of a new life. Beginning of a new life. I want us to turn over to one of the great passages in the Bible, the dying thief. If you'd like to turn to page 1060, 1060. I'm going to read a little bit as we close from Luke chapter 23. If you don't need to turn to that, I'll read it, it's fine. Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been crucified. And he's not crucified alone, there are two others. And Luke chapter 23 records, starting at verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes.
by casting lots. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Abraham looked at Lot and offered him the land. The land looked like paradise, but it wasn't. Jesus looked at the dying thief and gave him paradise. It was guaranteed because Jesus' death had paid the entrance price. Thieves shouldn't go to paradise. Why? Because they would nick all the stuff and sell it down the market. Thieves will ruin paradise with their greed and self-centeredness. They don't deserve to go. They will ruin it for the rest of us. They should be kept out. But Jesus Christ says, I'll pay for you. I'll pay for you and make you worthy with my blood. You and me, we're like the thief. We don't deserve to go there. We're so small-minded and petty and sinful. If only, if people knew all the things you'd done and thought and said this year and we projected it on these two screens, you would leave this building and never come back. We don't deserve to go to paradise. But Jesus Christ says, you're coming. I paid your ticket with my own blood. As a result of his cross, you and I are promised a land, a world that's beyond Abraham's wildest dreams, a guaranteed future, a sure and certain hope of the resurrection, a reward stored away that Barbara Phillips is this day enjoying in the presence of her Lord and Saviour. And when you know that, you are free to be generous. In fact, it just came into my mind at this moment that more than 25 years ago when we were raising money to uh, buy this, to build this building that we're all in here today, uh, Barbara Phillips sold a collection of uh, very precious things to her, a collection of dolls, I believe it was, that were very valuable, and she sold them to help build the King Centre. See, God had set her free from holding on to that stuff, even though she really loved them. The gospel made her generous because she looked at Jesus, who gave everything for her and was given all the status and security that she needed. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just thank you humbly today. You don't treat us as our sins deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us. We didn't deserve to be forgiven. We didn't deserve your smile and your acceptance. But far, far more, we didn't deserve to be adopted into your family and given the rights of inheritance along with Jesus. You're just so amazing. And we thank you. And we ask that you'd show us this week, even now in this song, show us where we can be beautifully generous. Amen.